Hey, can we go ahead and thank the band for leading us uh, once again in uh, some awesome music. <clears throat> My least favorite part about preaching is I feel like I can't really belt out the songs. Cause I'm like, oh yeah, I gotta like talk for a little bit of time uh, and I don't wanna lose my voice. And so if I sound a little hoarse, that might be why. Um, hey, we're so glad to have you guys here. Uh, my name's Christian, I'm on staff for those who don't know me. And we're in this series called Rest in Peace Church. Identifying good reasons to stop attending church. What a really weird uh, sermon title, right? Um, some of you might be thinking like, Christian, do you care at all about the mission of Jesus? Like, why would you ask people or invite them or even give them reason to stop attending church, right? You might even also ask, uh, Christian, um, isn't this your full-time job, right? Like, don't you support your, your wife and your twins uh, with this job and, and your hobby of attending Wawa a lot? Like, don't you support that? Like, of course I do, right? Um, you might be asking, so why, why, why delve into this idea? Like, why even suggest that we stop attending church? And I'd like to answer that question uh, by showing you a picture of Taylor Swift and I. Um, so uh, I lived in Nashville, or not Nashville, I lived in Tennessee, but I was in Nashville one weekend, and um, I was at the mall, and I look over, and there is T-Swift. I'm not like a Swifty or anything, but I was like, oh my goodness, Taylor Swift right here in Nashville. So I walk over, and, and I get a picture, and I'll be honest, like it was a really, it was kind of in a cold encounter, right? Uh, she, she didn't speak a lot, she didn't say much. Uh, it was just kind of this, this weird engagement. And the reason being is because this is a wax statue of Taylor Swift. This is, uh, yeah, this is the Madame Tussauds uh, kind of exhibit that they have like throughout the country um, where you can pose with celebrities, but they're really wax uh, statues. And this enabled me to actually get a picture with the late Elvis Presley. Uh, and I tried to do it in such a way where it looked like he was taking the selfie, right? Um, but I don't, think, uh, I don't think it really comes off uh, that way. Um, but the reason why I show you wax statues, right, they, they, they look so real on the outside. Like it's unreal if you were passing, you think, holy cow, there's Taylor Swift, there's Elvis, I thought he passed away, right? You, you, you look at these statues and they look so real on the outside, but then of course when you get closer, you realize they're not, they're just, they're dead and hollow on the inside. There's no life there. It looks like the real deal, all right? It could convince someone. I could show people a picture and not explain any of the context and be like, whoa, that's, that's crazy, right? But I know, like on the inside, it's just, it's just a wax statue. It's hollow and it's totally dead. And this is the heart behind this series. God is inviting us, all of us, everyone, to participate in an otherworldly hope carrying, joyous, loving, and giving community called the church. And the church uh, is invited to bring the best news of great joy to a broken world, right? That's what we're called to do. We see this in the Great Commission. That is our calling as a church, is to bring the best news, right? If, and if we realize this news, it should bring us great joy. And that's what we are called to do. Anything less than that is artificial, if we settle for anything less than that, if we bypass the invitation to be bearers of Christ in a broken world, if we, if we try and go about this in a loveless manner, uh, if we try and go about this, make it look like the real deal, right? Uh, if we settle for anything less than what God is inviting us to, it's totally artificial and it's worth doing away with, right? 
It's worth totally disregarding, totally uh, doing away with, right? Any attempts that look like the real deal but are dead inside are worth abandoning altogether. And I don't want to miss what God's calling me to, right? Do you want to miss what God's calling you to? I don't find a lot of people come to church and say, yeah, I'd like to just miss out on it all. None of us really want to do that, right? And so what we wanted to do in this series is really wrestle with what are some good reasons to abandon that which is artificial, like what in our culture, what in our operations, what are we doing as a church that's just not what God is calling us to? When you hold it next to this great invitation God's giving us, it just does not match up. So what can we abandon altogether in exchange for what God's calling us to? Because let me tell you what, it's a lot more exciting to participate in what God's calling us to. Amen, right? Amen. Um, and so we don't want to miss this. And so the idea is let's identify really good reasons to just stop attending church. And then let's, in exchange for that, figure out what does it look like to become a cross-shaped community? A community so formed by what it is that Christ has done and so uh, transformed, right? What does it look like to stop just merely attending church, stop just showing up on a Sunday, but what does it look like to become a cross-shaped community that is totally otherworldly, totally joyous, right, with great hope that we have? Is anyone interested in that? Anyone interested in that? Right? Yeah, we want that, right? Um, and so that's why we're in this series. Um, that's why we're navigating through this. I'm really grateful. Uh, last week, Jeff Lample started us off. Thank you, Jeff, on what was just a kind of a great opening to the series. He identified, um, he identified this tension that we live in, right? First off, he identified that there's, we have this invitation as a church to be priests, to, to kind of intermediate in some ways uh, and invite people into this beautiful thing that God is doing, right? We get the opportunity to participate in that. And then Jeff identified, but there's this tension that we live in, right? We still live in this world that's so broken and messy, right? We have uh, all of these worldly forces that are trying to kind of interfere and impede on what we are trying to do, right? And so he, he showed us last week, we can either be on team lamb or team dragon, and both are images from Revelation that depict what's happening in our world, right? As a church, we are hopefully following Jesus, team lamb, what God is doing. But then uh, you don't have to, you know, you walk out of here Monday morning, you feel the tension of just living in a broken world, right? Uh, and you feel like the wrestling, the temptation, just throwing the towel, like what does it matter, right? Uh, we don't want, and so we have this idea of like a team dragon of just the evil forces in the world uh, that try and kind of uh, pick away at our attention and to draw us away from what God's calling us to. And so Jeff did a really awesome job opening that this week. And so today we're continuing in Revelation. And I know say Revelation, sometimes people get like freaked out. I, I had a dear friend of mine who she wouldn't attend her church when, uh, when they were speaking about Revelation. Because it's just like so confusing. <laughs> like what is this book about? Like brought up like a lot of fear and, and, and confusion. And so what we hope to do is unpack it in a way that just kind of makes sense as we journey through these seven letters. Um, and so in Revelation, the word Revelation actually means apocalypsis, which basically means to reveal or to uncover. There's something that was not known before that we are revealing and showing. So God is revealing something. And if you remember in chapter one, it says the book is about the revelation of Jesus Christ and the hope that we have because of Jesus, both today and forevermore. That's the objective of the book. 
Like let's, we don't want to get lost in all the other details, really important details, but the objective of the book is to reveal what it is that God is doing in the, the God and the person of Jesus Christ both now and forever. And we have great hope because of it. That's like the story of Revelation. We have great hope, right? And so this letter is written by uh, John who uh, was exiled to this island called Patmos, right? It's, imagine, uh, imagine, you know, you have the mainland uh, America and then you're exiled to Hawaii, which doesn't sound like a bad thing. But I don't know what I don't know what Patmos was like. But basically, he was exiled to an island away from the mainland. Um, and he is writing to churches in the mainland. And he is writing to a, a, a persecuted minority religion, Christianity. That's being, they're experiencing the tension of following the lamb in the midst of the world of like the dragon or, or Babylon, just this, this culture that's so contrary um, to what God is inviting us to. And so he's writing these letters to these churches and there's seven of them. And he has two objectives with uh, each letter. One is to encourage and assure them. They were facing pretty like violent persecution under Emperor Domitian. And people were dying. Like it was a common occurrence that people would die for their faith. He was exiled because he was teaching the ways of Christianity. And so he's trying to encourage them like, hey, have grit, lean in. Don't give up like you guys uh, can endure, right? And so he's trying to uh, reassure them uh, with the promises of God, like just hang in there, right? And the second thing he's trying to do is to warn and challenge them. You see, if you live in a world that's got like so many competing uh, influences, you might be tempted to compromise your own faith uh, or to kind of blend it with the ways of the world. And so there was this tension, of course, that they experienced um, where uh, where people were compromising the faith. Some Christians at the time saw no difference between their own faith and what God was calling them to in the world, right? And so John's trying to write to them, say, hey, 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 uh, I, have to, I have to challenge you. I have to warn you of what is happening here. Uh, and I need you to see uh, the bigger picture here. And so he's saying, don't compromise. Don't give in and endure, right? And so today we're gonna to be reading the letter to the church in Ephesus. And the main point of this letter is today's bottom line. If you remember anything, you know, I kind of want you to, to, to think about remembering this idea that John's trying to communicate in the letter. And the bottom line is this, our disordered loves will be the death of the church. Our disordered loves will be the death of the church. How we kind of prioritize, prioritize things as a, as a community that follows Jesus how we navigate the, you know, all the, the things that beg for our attention in our lives will either make or break the church. Another way to think of it is like whatever we love most will either make or break church. And we see this in the letter today. And so um, I don't know about you guys, but sometimes I have really deep concern that the many things that vie for my attention and the many things on my to-do list that I'm like just totally misprioritizing, right? Anyone guilty of that? Just me? Maybe some of us? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, that I'm just totally misprioritizing, that I'm missing the bigger picture, that God's got something so much bigger in store for me and I'm just totally missing it because I've just misarranged my life. And I can imagine that I'm not the only one that feels like that, right? I can imagine that some of us in here wrestle with this reality of like, yeah, you know, sometimes I think I'm missing out on what God is inviting us to. Or sometimes I think there's a lot that's vying for my attention in a week uh, and I don't know if I have it arranged in a way that makes sense for what I truly believe and value, right? Um, and I think surely God understands the risk of that. And God understands the temptation of that, which is why I think we get this in the revelation of Jesus in Revelation, this, this letter to Ephesus, which applies to that church, but every single church in the history of the world, including the Christian Life Center. Um, so 
as we go through this, I want you to wrestle with what might it look like to order our loves aright? What might it look like to prioritize our life and to arrange things in a way that just makes sense to what God is inviting us to? What would it look like for the church, the CLC, to be a community that has its priorities so straight that we have things, you know, we love God so much, we love our community so much. What would it look like for us to be a community that does not falter uh, in the way that we organize our priorities? What would that look like, right? So let's dream a bit today. I'm confident that God will do something good in the text here. And so um, we're going to jump into Revelation 2, verse 1. But before we do so, uh, let's pray. Um, God, we're so grateful for your word. Um, God, we just pray that this morning that you would help us very honestly wrestle with our own lives and take kind of inventory of what it is that we just give ourselves to um, and help us make it make sense in light of what you've invited us to. God, help us um, put to death the things that don't matter. Um, Help us do away with things that interfere uh, and enable us to Uh, learn to love you well, and learn to love this community well. Enable us to uh, be the church that you've invited us to be. May we not settle for any counterfeits, any artificial uh, artificial communities of any kind, but God, uh, call us deeper. We ask that you'll speak through your word this morning, prepare our hearts to um, receive that, God, and we just pray um, that you would so graciously hold us accountable with this text. God, we love you so much. Thank you for loving us. We pray this in your name, and everybody said, amen. So we're going to start in Revelation chapter 2, verse 1. And this is what it reads. To the angel of the church in Ephesus write, These are the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks among the seven golden lampstands. I don't don't know about you, but I could have three cups of coffee and have no idea what that passage is saying. (laughs) Like, what? Angel and stars and lampstands. So what I want to do is pause and kind of unpack this a little bit. Um, So Revelation, if you, for, you know, biblical scholars, they've categorized it as apocalyptic literature. It is literature that falls under the genre of apocalyptic literature. So it operates in a certain way. And we have to go into the reading with the expectations of how it operates. And so apocalyptic literature in ancient Hebrew tradition employed a lot of imagery that would point to something bigger. It would point to imagery and symbols that do what words alone could not do. And it would try and unpack it. There's a scholar that I love. His name's Tim Mackey. And he said, every symbol and, and imagery in Revelation operates as a hyperlink, right? If you ever go to Wikipedia and you hate reading the articles because there's like 30 hyperlinks. So to understand the topic, you gotta click every single hyperlink, right? Um, it points to something. It takes you elsewhere, right? And this is kind of maybe new for some of us, but this was totally normal for anyone who uh, in that time read Revelation. They would see these kind of hyperlinks and understand, oh, I know what that is referring to. And almost all the time it would refer to Old Testament uh, imagery, right? And we have our versions of this today. Do we not, right? I mean, um, we have representations of this. So um, political cartoons, right? You see there's an elephant and a donkey, right? If people didn't know how political cartoons operated in America, they'd think, wow, America has a really weird fascination with donkeys and elephants. Like, what about them do they, like, love, right? But we know as we read these political cartoons, we know what they represent, this kind of bipartisan culture that we have, what, right? We don't have to think twice when we see those cartoons. Last week, Jeff mentioned the lamb. Uh, and so we have this image of a lamb um, who represents Jesus, right? Uh, 
So you know, when we vote, we're voting with our hopefully faith in mind, right? That's the idea. And so, but we have these images that we look at and we're like, I know what all of these represent. Just by looking at it, it unpacks kind of a whole ideology that we are familiar with, right? Uh, the same thing is with a flag, right? Any flag, many of us know the American flag, right? Each of those colors and symbols represents something different. Um, it points to something greater than the image itself. It unpacks something bigger for us, right? There's a flag that a lot of us grew very familiar with in the last, uh, last year, it's Ukraine's flag. Um, it's Ukraine's flag. And so Ukraine, I didn't realize this, is considered the breadbasket of Europe because um, they, have, they import so much grain to the rest of Europe. And so you wouldn't tell this just by looking at the flag, but it's supposed to represent a grain field and a blue sky. That's the idea, right? So the flag itself captures an idea that is bigger than what we see in just the flag. It unpacks meaning that we otherwise would not know, right? And so that's what's happening in this opening text uh, with these images. And so the first thing we see is angel. We might think a literal angel, like, you know, you know those things with wings that fly and harps and all that stuff. They actually don't look like that in the Bible. Um, but we might think that, however, that's not what the text is actually trying to get at, right? Uh, angel in this context means like a messenger, which would have been the leader of that church. And and so when John's writing this to the angel of the church of Ephesus, he's actually writing it to most likely Timothy, who had responsibility in overseeing this church. If John were writing the letter today to CLC, Bob would be our angel. You would be our angel, right? I wouldn't recommend calling him that, but uh, that's the idea of... Uh, <laughs> That's the idea of what he's getting at, to the angel, to the messenger, the one who bears responsibility to communicate to my church in Ephesus. We see uh, the stars. The stars represent the seven churches uh, that John is writing to. And what is Jesus doing with those stars? He's holding them, right? He's holding the stars. This should give us kind of this image that actually, hey, hey, God cares. <laughs> like, we could be going through a really difficult time, but God cares. He holds us. You can almost imagine God saying like, hey, I have you. In fact, the, 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 text, is, the text implies like he's holding fast to these seven stars. So the image here is that God's not just like holding literally seven stars, but the idea is that God's holding the seven churches in his hand in what is a very, very detrimental time for their existence, right? God holds them. What do we see next? The lampstands. These lampstands also represent the seven churches. And what is Jesus doing, right? You gotta ask these questions. What is Christ doing? He's walking among them. He's present with them, right? Maybe if, uh, if one of the, the lampstands are flickering, he's rekindling the flame, or he's supplying the oil to let it burn anew, right? And so we could imagine Christ saying, hey, I'm with you. You're not alone in this. And so the, this, this imagery is supposed to reassure people in great pain. And it should reassure us today, too, that we have a God who holds fast to his church. That we have a God who walks amongst us, that is not far off, right? Even in the moments like, I can't imagine they were feeling God's presence as they were experiencing persecution. But the reality is that God holds fast to his church, and he walks among them. This should, this should really, really encourage them. So Jesus cares deeply about the church. Jesus cares deeply about the CLC. And the passage continues in verse 2. I know your works, your toil, and your endurance. I know that you cannot tolerate evildoers. You have tested those who claim to be apostles but are not, and have found them to be false. 
I also know that you are enduring and bearing up for the sake of my name and that you have not grown weary. If this were like a report card, I'd like totally put it on the fridge in front of my mom, right? (laughs) My mom and dad, I'd want them to see like, hey, check out what Jesus said about me. Like, look what we're doing right, right? You put that on the fridge for everybody to see. Um, In regards to the church of Ephesus, Jesus is commending them. He's saying, hey, you are enduring what is an impossible situation. You are enduring what is happening under the emperor Domitian which would have been incredibly difficult. Like imagine, right? I don't face a lot of opposition for my faith today. And sometimes, you know, still wrestle with faith. But here they are, like their family and friends are dying and they're still pressing into what God has for them. So he is commending them. You guys are enduring. You're doing well. Keep at it. Uh, And then he's, he's commenting on they've guarded the church. You test all the teachings that come in your doors and you ensure that they reflect what it is that Jesus teaches. You don't let just anybody and you guys care very deeply about the beliefs, the doctrine that you hold dearly and you do not sway from that, which would have been really difficult in that world with Babylon, right? This oppressive cultural force that for many churches infiltrated uh, the way they think, the questions they ask, the way they seek God, right? And here he's writing to Ephesus saying, keep at it. You're doing a really good job. You are not letting just any teachings walk through your door. Uh, You are leaning into what God would have for you. And then he says, you labored for my name's sake to advance the cause of Jesus. They have wearisome toil, but they've not wearied out. Which would have been a miracle, right? I mean, this church in Ephesus would be a model for us. If we looked at it and saw all that they accomplished in light of what was happening around them, we would look at that and say, I want to be like that church. Except when you get to verse 4. It's always a catch in these letters. Verse 4 says this, But I have this against you. You have abandoned the love you had at first. There's other versions that say you've forsaken the love that you had at first. It's probably the point where I'd like go back to the report card and be like, oh, I didn't see that mark. Let me take that off the fridge. <laughs> I don't want anyone to see that. Um, this church looked like the real deal on the outside. They looked like they had it all together. They were the model church. But here Jesus is writing to them and say, that's all fake. It's artificial because the main thing that you're called to do, you're not doing. Now, I know, um, I know the English language is a little complicated um, because this word for love can mean a myriad of things, right? I can, in the same phrase, use the same word to describe my affection for my wife and a taco, right? It just doesn't make sense. Um, and so this, this word love means so many things. So let's try and unpack what, it, what is it that they're getting at in this passage? Like, what is it that they've really forsaken, right? And so I want to talk about, um, real quick, two depictions of love that I think are important. And originally, I didn't think the first one mattered in regards to our love for God and neighbor, but actually I think, I think it does. And so um, two depictions, there's nothing like inherently theological about this, but just want to unpack it for a moment. But I recall uh, when I, Justin and I grew in love, um, we have a picture of when uh, it was her 18th birthday. It was the year that we started uh, dating. Um, I, uh, I practiced guitar and played for her, and I think it just made her weak at the knees. And she's like, oh my gosh, Christian. Um, so that's how we fell in love, guys. Um, but I recall uh, we got to know each other in high school. 
and, um, and we were friends for a few years, um, but I recall, um, you know, when we text, we text about nothing important, um, but I'd have great anxiety. I'd, like, read the text over and over to, like, could she mean this, or could she, like, mean this, and so then I'd, like, take 30 minutes to type up a text and, like, pray about it and then, like, send it out, and then I'd have anxiety, like, but what if she thinks that I meant this? Like, really, like, overwhelming stuff, right? And that just happened all the time because it was just so head over heels for her, right? And so I'd, uh, that would happen. I recall the first time that we held hands, um, she's so funny. We were like walking and I would like very nonchalantly and like really like, you know, sly, graze my hand on her hand, right? Like just trying to communicate to you what I'm trying to do here. And just like multiple times like graze my hand on her hand. And then she like at one point she just stopped and you're like, are you trying to hold my hand? I'm like, <laughs> I guess, yeah, yeah, I'm trying to hold your hand. And that was the first time we held hands and it was in the aisle of the Kennett Walmart guys. Like really, really romantic place, right? Um, but it was almost like a really like young, like new, novel, exciting, passionate love, like almost obnoxious, right? We, we always see those couples, and they're kind of over the top, and they're displaying it a bit, right? And it just kind of bubbles up. You can't like keep it down type thing, right? And so it's a young love characterized by this feeling of passion and excitement that then grows into something far more wonderful, mature, and durable. And that's like kind of the second phase, both of which are important, but love as a verb, as an action that we take, even when the feelings and the passion, the excitement naturally ebbs and flows. That's the way of life. It's okay. It's normal for that to happen. And so we have love, that passion, excitement, but then love that makes the decision to love, even when the feelings ebb and flow, even when Jess and I have a fighter, even when we're experiencing this difficulty together, this love that is constant in the ebbing and the flowing, uh, the love that uh, stands the test of great pain, a great work, great time, great energy, great cost. And we see in the scripture, in this passage, the word they employ is agape. And it's the, it's the kind of love that Jesus models perfectly for us. It's the only perfect model of this love that we will see. But we're invited to do the same. To love uh, just beyond the feeling and the excitement. To love when there's great, you know, life pressing in on every side to kind of lean in, right? It, it's not merely a feeling, but an action and a decision we make for the well-being of another. And it endures. It endures, Right? And so John's writing in verse 4, you have forsaken, you have abandoned the love you had at first. You have totally given it up. Many churches were susceptible to this at the time. It's the love they had at first. They no longer, a lot of scholars think, what are they referring to? It's the love they had for God and the love they had for their neighbor. Which if you look at the Christian faith in Matthew, Jesus distills all of the teaching, everything that he did on earth, he distilled it into two invitations to love God and love neighbor. And here the church in Ephesus took the one thing that all of Christianity hangs on and totally abandoned it. The, the Greek word is they have, uh, they've released it in exchange for this mechanical, loveless orthodoxy. Right? They looked like they had the real deal on the outside, but inside there was nothing. Right? And they just gave it up. Their loves were disordered. They were a church that was crazy about church, but not so much about Jesus. I hope that that would never become the CLC, right? Crazy about church, but not so much about Jesus. There was no passion, no great interest, no joy, no zeal, no excitement, no dedication, no endurance, no self-giving towards God and neighbor. It's this type of church that 1 Corinthians 13 rebukes. And it's funny because... 
At almost every wedding you go to, they read 1 Corinthians 13, right? Love is patient, love is kind. But they always skip the first three verses, which is like where the, the rebuke is. And it says this, if I speak in the tongues of men and angels, but do not have love, I'm a resounding gong or a clanging cymbal. I'm just making noise. Just making noise. If I have the gift of prophecy and can fathom all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have a faith that can move the mountains, which is a really big deal, right? But do not have love, I'm nothing. If I give all I possess to the poor and give over my body to hardship that I may boast but do not have love, I gain nothing. Ephesus exchanged their love for God and neighbor for other things, not knowing that that was killing their church, even though everything looked really great on the outside, right? So how do we do this today? What does it look like to misprioritize our loves? And this takes some really honest uh, inventory on all of our parts, right? Um, but how does this look like today? Uh, we sacrifice our love for God and neighbor on the altar of religious institutions, right? Um, I know, you know, we could be really good at Bible studies, but terrible at loving the widow and the poor, which is what Jesus calls us to, right? We can know all the theology in the world, but not have any clue how to actually enact on it. We can look alive on the outside, but inside, man, there's nothing there. There's no love for God and neighbor. I've seen churches, we've seen this in the news in the last few years, and even longer than that, churches that um, go to great lengths to cover up wrongdoing in, in an effort to keep the institution alive, failing to love God and neighbor. I would hope that our church doors would close before that ever becomes a fabric of who we are. We sacrifice our love for God and neighbor on the altar of our political itineraries and political ideologies. God calls us to love our neighbor, not our ideology. And I know that's a sensitive conversation for all of us, right? But that's what we're invited to do. And if the church is going to be a different community, an otherworldly community, we have to model it well there. We just need to, Right? Politics is concerned with power and policy. We ought to be concerned for just people and not outsourcing our loving for them, for, uh, for our political leaders, because they do a terrible job at it anyway, right? And so we, we need to love people over our ideologies, right? That's the calling and the invitation. We don't want to misorder our loves. We sacrifice our love for God and neighbor on the altar of successful careers. We have our careers... <clears throat> And we try to incorporate faith into our career when we should be incorporating our career into our faith, right? We should be incorporating that into what is our whole life, our faith in Jesus and what God has called us to do. We have it a little backwards. We'll sacrifice our love for God and neighbor on the altar of comfort and safety. We'll take zero risk, which is wild because to love someone means to take all the risk in the world. C.S. Lewis says, like, to be loved is to be vulnerable, and that's not a very safe space to be, right? We sacrifice our love for God on the, and neighbor on the altar of pleasure and entertainment. That shows up where we spend our, most of our money, our time, and our energy. We sacrifice our love for God on the altar of fill in the blank. Whatever it might be for us. Let's take honest inventory because, man, I don't want to look alive on the outside but have nothing alive on the inside, right? We've disordered our loves many a times. And the disordering of our loves, especially in the church, will be the death of the church. Are we okay with that? I'm not, right? Anyone else with me? I'm not okay with that, okay? So the cost of doing this is great. 
And we see that in uh, the cost of disordering our loves, that is, is great. And Jesus depicts that in verse 5. He says, Remember then from where you have fallen. Repent and do the works that you did at first. If not, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. Kind of seems harsh, right? I mean, shouldn't Jesus consider how good the church in Ephesus is doing? Like, they got a lot of stuff going for them. They've been exemplary for their, you know, neighboring churches. They got a lot right. Like, is it really necessary for Jesus to actually remove the lampstand altogether, to remove their status as a church, to let them die as a church? Is that, is that okay? Is that appropriate, right? Uh, Pastor David Platt says, um, and I totally agree with this, Jesus doesn't pamper us. He loves us. And so maybe that's what, what's happening here. Um, he's being very intentional. So um, let's think about it this way. What's the objective of a hospital? Shout it out. To heal, right? If there's a physical ailment, you go to a hospital, hospital with the hope that you will be made well again, that you will be made healthy again. So let's just say you go to a hospital, and man, their valet is awesome. Very efficient, very professional. Their nurses are so caring, uh, so attentive to our needs, right? The cafeteria is banging. Like, it is so, so good, right? It's not cafeteria food there. It's the real deal, Right? Let's just say they had all those things in place, but the catch is that no one comes out of the hospital alive. No one comes out of the hospital alive. Everyone who goes in can expect to die there. They are not coming out of this hospital. But guess what, man? The rooms and the beds are really comfortable. They're top of the line. It was a very affordable place. Uh, the staff was super friendly, right? Would any of us want to go to that hospital? No. If no one survived, it would be worth shutting the hospital down entirely, right? In the same way, you could have a church that's great at having church services. Their music is amazing, biblically-based preaching, the Bible studies are theologically rich, the coffee is out of this world, you could have a church that's bursting at the seams, the budget is growing, and people are really, really kind there, yet the church is disordered in their loves and does not seek to love God and neighbor as its primary mandate, it's not a church at all. It's just an expensively themed religious club. And it is worth letting that go. And I suspect no one in here wants that. Like, I don't think any of us come here on a Sunday morning thinking like, that's what I want. I want a place that does everything well except love God and neighbor. I think all of us are here because we really want to figure out what does it look like to do that well? What does it look like to do God and well? We could do all of these, these other things, these extracurriculars, but if they're not enabling us to love God and neighbor better, then we should have nothing to do with it. Or we should reform it or refine it until it is forming us in that way. Again, the main idea, it's this disordered loves that will be the death of the church. We might look great on the outside, but man, the work, what matters is what's happening on the inside. What are we doing? <clears throat> I'm not an expert in relationships at all, um, but uh, usually what we observe is like, a, usually what ha the first thing to go in a relationship that starts to deteriorate is like, is, is love, right? And then that manifests maybe in a careless word here and there. There's con this concept called stonewalling where you just don't really engage anymore. You don't talk. You kind of ignore them. You're not honest about what you're feeling. Um, so when love disappears, it starts to break down. And uh, we see this, you know, eventually grow into some like really harsh interactions. Um, it could be like cheating, lying, whatever it is. And it just totally uh, destroys this relationship. Just an idea. 
And then on the flip side of that, we see that usually the presence of love is a catalyst for something amazing, right? Usually the presence of love in a relationship has the opposite effect. It builds up. Uh, it's, it could be a love of great excitement and passion and more maturity um, that journeys forward even when the feelings of love ebb, ebb and flow. But it's this idea that love kind of builds up. It, it, uh, it feeds the relationship and it often transforms both the giver and the recipient. And it transforms the church. And so when we get rid of our loves, man, when we fail and neglect and just release this calling to love God and neighbor, we can expect that that will maybe manifest itself in things breaking down. And we might still have some things going really well for us, but we'll be dead on the inside. But instead, we're invited to, hey, we have to prioritize what God's calling us to, to love God and love neighbor well. Should the church disorder its love, should we sacrifice our love for God and neighbor on the altar of anything, it'll cease to be what it was meant to be. It may look real on the outside, but it's dead. And so Jesus removes the lampstand, which in that context, it makes a lot of sense, right? I would want, I would hate, but I would want Jesus to remove our lampstand, CLC, if we are not at all subscribing to loving God and loving our neighbor, right? It would be better for this place to cease to exist than to operate in a way that is just totally dead inside. And so this letter from God, from John, that actually if you see at the beginning, remember, it's Jesus speaking to John to speak to the church. Um, and so I kind of see it as a, as a letter from a really good physician because there's two things that we see. There's an honest diagnosis, right? Uh, a good doctor is one that gives you an honest diagnosis. A bad doctor is like, doesn't want you to, you know, feel hurt or pain. She's like, you're good. You know, head home, continue what you're doing, right? Jesus is a good physician, and he doesn't want to send his church off sick. And so he's giving them an honest diagnosis for the way that things are, which is such a gracious thing, right? And then he provides any possible path to healing. He doesn't leave us on our own and like, hey, figure it out, guys. Um, he offers us a path to healing. And so I think Jesus graciously offers this diagnosis that you're sick with a terminal illness, your loves are disordered. And you will die as a church, and your lampstand will be removed. And that's the warning. Should this continue to happen, it will be the death of the church, and your lampstand will be removed. So we have the diagnosis, the warning, right? If you're, if you're sick, um, usually the doctor says, like, hey, if we did not do treatment, this is what, what would be the outcome, right? But I don't want that to be the case. And so usually we get the treatment, the prescription, the path to healing. And Jesus offers that. He offers a prescribed way towards healing, which I hope, church, I hope that as we look at our own lives, we can take inventory and figure out what does it look like to participate in this, to not miss out on this, and to experience healing, right? And so he offers us a couple things. First, to remember in verse 5. Remember then from where you have fallen. Um, when the girls were born, we started this tradition um, where uh, for the first year, a couple years of their life, we order this, it's called a chat book, um, and we just, it's just pictures from the month, and we pour it into this book, and then they send it to us in the mail. So we got like six of them now, because they're about six months old, um, and we will go back to look at the first book, we're like, oh my gosh, they're so small, like they don't even look like the same babies, and it's like we totally forgot what happened five to six months ago, right? Right? We just totally forget about it. And the chaos and the stress of today, we forgot that they were little potatoes when we brought them home, right? And so Jesus is saying, remember 
Look back and remember the goodness that you've experienced. Remember what I did in your life that prompted you to follow me in the first place. Remember, don't forget, which is an important thing, especially in this church in Ephesus as they're experiencing hell all around them. Remember, Jesus is inviting us to remember where we were, to recall the love that so inspired and encouraged us uh, and prompted us to follow him, to recall how good God is. There's nothing like a a difficult situation that will try and challenge that. But to recall, remember, remember that God is good and he holds you fast and he is with you, right? And then the second thing is to repent and do the things that you did at first. Repent, we sang about that a few minutes ago. It's all about reorienting yourself. It's this idea that we are turning away from something and towards something. We are reorienting ourselves entirely. So Jesus is saying, repent, turn away from this silly practice of not loving God and neighbor and participate in church in the way that I've invited you to. And then he says, do the things you did at first. He's not saying like, wait until you've conjured up the feelings, right? That's so hard. We experience this passion, that's what brings us into the faith, but that mature love, even in the midst of trial, that agape is what kind of helps us lean in even more. And he says, do the things that you did at first to practice that loving. And it's cool, oftentimes when we do that anyway, we experience the joy that we had in loving God and neighbor, right? If I am... I love my girls, but I'm never like, I'm so excited to change their diapers, right? So excited. Um, if I wait for the feelings, like if Jess is like, hey, can you help me change their diapers? And I'm like, you know, I'm just not feeling it right now. Like, I respect the request, but I'm okay, right? No thanks. She'd like buy a doghouse and I'd be sleeping in it outside, right? Um, it's do the things that you did at first. Remember what you did? Remember we looked back? Remember what you did when you first encountered this grace? Receive that gift again and do the things you did at first. And that will slowly transform us. Remember, love transforms both the giver and the recipient. And God will do a work that is out of this world that we could never anticipate when we practice this. And so uh, the letter concludes in verse uh, 6 and 7. It says, Yet this to your credit... You hate the works of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. Let anyone who has an ear listen to what the Spirit is saying to the churches. To everyone who conquers, I will give permission to eat from the tree of life that is in the paradise of God. So once more, Jesus commends them. He's like, hey, you, you guys are not accepting the, the teachings and the influence of the Nicolaitans, which um, that was a kind of a, a, a Christian cult sect that tried to basically bring in pagan and really terrible practices and normalize that in church life. And he's saying, hey, hey, remember, you're, you're, you're doing a good job there, but remember what it is that you need to do. And so he finishes with whoever has ears, let them hear. Who has ears? All of us, Right? And so this statement was intended to arrest their attention. Like, hey, this next phrase is really, really, really important. And what is it? It's a promise. It says, those, uh, to the one who is victorious, I'll give the right to eat from the tree of life. Do you remember apocalyptic literature employs imagery, pictures, right? And so um, the, the word here that they use for paradise in Greek means garden, And where in the Bible do we see a garden with a tree of life? Eden. So it's this idea, and we see this in Revelation, that God is making all things new. 
that we get to exist in harmony with each other, with our creator, in a perfect garden. And that's the promise that, hey, if you hang on, if you lean in, love God and love neighbor, we will share in the joys of this together for eternity. May we not abandon our first love. May we not become a church that appears alive on the outside but is totally dead on the inside. In closing, I want to be kind of uh, clear and I'll invite the band up. Um, <clears throat> it's really hard sometimes to uh, listen to these sermons for you guys uh, and then not have like a grocery list of items that you feel like, ah, you know, gotta go home and I gotta do this better gotta read my Bible more gotta do all of these things it's really hard to go home and feel like not feel like a ton of guilt and shame on you um but I want to remind us that none of us actually need reminders of what we're doing wrong, right? Uh, none of us need to come to church to be reminded of the things that we already, for many of us, maybe know about. Maybe some of us are denying it. Maybe we need that reminder. But none of us, uh, none of us need to carry the guilt and shame of that. And I don't think that's what Jesus wants for us either. Because this letter is an act of love. And Jesus is giving them an act of grace here. He's offering an invitation that will transform them. He's offering them, again, that diagnosis that is, it will kill you unless something happens. And then he's offering the prescription for healing, which is turning around, reorienting, and remember. Now, I've gone to the doctor before. The doctor makes recommendations. Sorry, Dr. Rooney. And I just don't follow him, right? <laughs> I'm like, I appreciate the recommendation. Thank you, but I'm all right, right? Um, God's giving us an invitation. He's given us a diagnosis. And he's giving us a path towards healing. Now, there's some work on our ends to do. Not to earn the love of God. We already have that. We don't have to earn that. We don't have to do anything for that. So let's stop thinking that. But it's to participate in the act of healing, right? If I get a prescription, it's important that I actually pick it up and, and take it and follow the instructions of the good physician so that I can experience healing inside of me. And right, and so I want to challenge you guys. I don't know what this looks like for you, but I want to challenge you. What does that healing look like? Where are our loves disordered? And how are we refusing uh, following the instructions of our good physician? We don't have to earn the healing. God's offering it to us. We just need to participate in it and to receive it. The prescription only works if we take it, right? So God's given us a prescription and he's inviting us to take it. So church, what would it look like for the CLC to evaluate what it is that we do? Everything, hold everything under a microscope it measures this loving God and neighbor. And what would it look like to reorient everything? This church would be, I mean, it is amazing. This is happening. I don't want to suggest that it's not, but imagine what it could look like if this was our mode of operation before we do anything else. It's loving God and loving neighbor really, really well. We will then be that otherworldly community that God's inviting us into. And let me tell you what, it's far more joyous uh, than attending anything where that is not taking place. And so the coolest part about healing, right, is you are transformed in the healing process, right? As someone who can't walk and now can walk again, if someone who is bedridden is now up and active. And so in this process, we're gonna experience great joy, great joy in the healing that God is inviting us into. So the hope is as a church, we lean in, we experience this healing, and then let's not be surprised when we're just over the moon with joy at what God is doing here. Amen? Amen. Amen. Um, 
We're super excited for this season of the church. Uh, staff is always wrestling and dreaming up some, some, what does it look like to love God and love neighbor well? Um, but I don't want to invite y'all to wait to figure out what in your life does it look like to love God and neighbor well? And how can we participate? How can we stop merely attending church? And how can we become a cross-shaped community? So I'm going to go ahead and pray for us. Um, Heavenly Father, um, I've gotten this so wrong many, many a times. Um, but you're so gracious and you're so good. So God, we just ask that uh, as we sing this last song, Graves into Gardens, this idea that you are a God that is, can do the impossible, that you can bring life out of death, that you um, can just infect everything with goodness, God. And so we pray as we sing this song that we would not lose um, faith and hope that you can bring gardens out of the graves in our lives, that you can bring life out of the really difficult situations. God, we pray that your spirit would hold us accountable. Um, that's such an act of grace that you give for us to help us grow aware of um, where, where we need to heal. And so God, I pray that your spirit would um, make us aware of those areas in our life that we have disordered and enable us to then um, participate in the healing process and experience the joy that comes along with that. And God, we pray that we would bring other people into here to experience your healing as well. So God, we love you so much. Thank you for loving us. We pray this in your name and everybody said, amen. amen. You may stand as we sing this last song.
We have a God who holds the seven stars in his hand, holds fast. A God that is walking amongst the seven lampstands. He cares very deeply about us. And he's giving us the invitation to love in a way that is just absurd to the rest of the world. Uh, to love God and love our neighbor as we operate as priests, bringing heaven to earth and showing people what they can expect. And we have a promise that we can count on, that we will experience a meal with God in paradise forever and ever. Amen. Uh, church, go in the peace and the grace and the healing of Jesus Christ, both now and forevermore. Amen. You guys have a great week.